The following program was pre-recorded. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists and community builders weeknights at 6. I'm Laura Jones, and later in the hour is Code Colorblind, Tanner Humanities Center Director Erica George in virtual conversation with author and associate professor Ruha Benjamin about the intersections of race, justice, and technology. Erica George will join me in just a moment to set up this conversation for the hour. But first, rallies and resources. And I have one question today, and that is for Katie Matheson of Alliance for a Better Utah. Earlier this week, Utah Governor Spencer Cox announced that the additional $300 weekly unemployment benefits and other federal unemployment programs related to the pandemic would end June 26th rather than the federal expiration of September 6th. We've been seeing other uh, GOP governors do the same across the country. Joining us for a response is Katie Matheson of the Alliance for a Better Utah, a nonprofit that holds politicians accountable and advocates for progressive policies to make Utah an even better place. I think I got that all right there. Katie, how are you? I am doing very well. How are you? So uh, doing well. Um, We've been seeing this happen in other GOP-led states, and now Governor Cox has made that decision here saying we don't need it. Utah has really low unemployment. Alliance for a Better Utah reading the tea leaf says this is premature. Yeah, I mean, look, every Utah, regardless of where they live or what their education level is, deserves to be able to pay their bills, keep a roof over their heads and feed their families. We can't, Utah can't afford right now, financially or morally, to return to, you know, this normal where it's like, all right, the pandemic's over, everybody's fine. Um, and this is a situation, you know, that was a, a normal where hardworking Utahns couldn't afford to take care of themselves or their families. So, you know, with historic low unemployment, um, but also the pandemic is still going on and some vaccine hesitancy, the thing to do right now is to wait until September, keep this going and help Utahns, you know, get their feet under them. I hear a lot from the GOP side of the aisle that we need to be more strategic. So why can't Utah be more strategic, I guess, is one of my questions with this money through September. I mean, I think that the 300, the, the money that was going to individuals who were unemployed was strategic. Like that was the strategic choice. Remember, Utahns, in order to receive unemployment, have to go through a process where they're showing that they are applying for jobs, right? So there's this national rumor that, you know, people are staying away from jobs because uh, of this money that they're getting. But Utah requires that you prove that you are applying for jobs. Um, and also, let's remember that, you know, Utah, so we take away the 300 extra dollars a week. Utah's baseline unemployment oftentimes is based on Utah's meager minimum wage, which is $7.25 an hour. And then what, $2.00? 13 cents, something like that for tipped workers. And meanwhile, the cost of living is rising astronomically in Utah. You know, it's no secret that folks are struggling to make, you know, to pay their rent, to to cover their mortgage. Like cost of living is going up. And now, especially when we're not quite out of this pandemic, is not the moment to take that rug out from under folks who are really struggling to make ends meet. We have a housing crunch, whether that's, uh, you know, buying a home or renting an apartment Earlier this week, Tara Rollins from Utah Housing Coalition said, you know, to afford a two-bedroom apartment in Utah right now, it's 20 bucks an hour, and that is certainly not the prevailing wage. So as we head into interim and more than likely special session next week, what would you want lawmakers to have on the top of their minds? Well, I think that as lawmakers go into the special session, you know, they have to receive officially the CARES Act funding from the federal government, which is going to inject a lot of money into our local economy, which is great. But think about when you talk about the dignity of work, think about the dignity of workers, the people who are doing that work 
work and making sure that, you know, prosperity for all of us means prosperity for everyone, including folks, you know, who are, you know, working what is currently the minimum wage. Like we should be making sure that everyone can put foot on their table and get a roof over their head. Start calling your lawmakers because they're going into (laughs) session, right? Yep. Katie, where can people find Alliance for Better Utah? You can find us um, on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Better Utah or at BetterUtah.org. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the statement and Alliance for a Better Utah. And now a conversation with Erica George of the Tanner Humanities Center as we go into a rebroadcast of her conversation last fall with Ruha Benjamin, author of Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code. Hi, Erica. How are you? Hi, Laura. I am doing well. How are you? I am doing well, and uh, I'm really excited to share this conversation that you had to start the Tanner Talks last fall with Ruha Benjamin, and uh, we're going to play a, a big chunk of what you had to say with Ruha from the fall, but maybe you could introduce our listeners who weren't able to attend to Ruha and her work. Certainly, certainly. So Ruha joined us as part of a new inaugural initiative at the Tanner Humanities Center that we've deemed the Tanner Talks. These talks, um, I launched these talks to ensure that we had a space to have unscripted conversations that were substantive and intelligent um, and accessible to the broader public, but bringing ideas and information that's being actively researched by scholars from around the country. And Rua Benjamin was the first of two speakers we had on our broad theme of the year, which was technology and the humanities. I've been very curious about the ways in which technology, particularly in a pandemic, has mediated the way that humans are interacting with one another, um, ways that we maybe even have self-concept as we're looking at our faces through Zoom or we're sharing um, you know, information or disinformation. So there, there's much to be said about the ways in which technology is impacting how human life is enjoyed, um, for good or for ill. And Rua Benjamin's work is really groundbreaking in that she's asking questions about the ways that technology is designed and deployed that may reinforce existing inequalities. So I wanted to talk to her about decoding discrimination. I wanted to talk to her about um, the connection between justice and access and who's active in the online environment and technology environment. So we talked about our most recent book. This is an ongoing conversation. I did a, a quick scan of, of headlines, uh, and it's still amazing how I feel behind we are. Law firms are building AI expertise as regulation booms. Europe's proposed limits on AI would have global consequences. FTC warning, artificial intelligence bias potential for enforcement liability. There was a recent story in the last month about a gentleman, a black man, I think somewhere in the Midwest, who was picked up because AI said, you're the guy. And he's like, that's not me. And this is what you're going to get into in this conversation. Exactly. Yes. Cases of mistaken identity, cases of technology not being able to read or register accurately information that it's used to great consequence, right? So if an algorithm is assessing who we're stopping, if we're police, who we're giving a mortgage to, if we're lenders, who we're giving favorable or unfavorable treatment to based on a proxy that's generated through a process of artificial intelligence that's not terribly transparent, I think those are the kinds of questions that humanists 
me to be engaged with. Erica George from the Tanner Humanities Center. And now we go to the program from October 15th, 2020, the Tanner Talk with Ruha Benjamin. Once again, Erica George. Professor Benjamin is a professor of African American Studies at Princeton University, and she is the founder of the Ida B. Wells Just Data Lab. Her work analyzes the social dimensions of science, technology, and medicine. Her books include Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code, Captivating Technology, an edited volume, Race, Carcereal Technoscience and the Liberatory Imagination in Everyday Life. And then her first book, The People's Science, Bodies and Rights on the Stem Cell Frontier. Um, she writes, teaches and speaks widely about the relationship between knowledge and power and race and citizenship, health and justice. Her next book, next book project tentatively titled the Emperor's New Genes, Borders, Belongings, and Bioethics Beyond the Genome, which I cannot wait to read, is going to investigate how the human pop, how human population genetics reinforce and reflect and sometimes challenge the socio-political distinctions as, such as race and class that uh, many communities confront. So taken together, her body of work addresses debates about how science and technology shape our social world and how people can and should and engage in the techno-science balancing risks and rewards of progress. And she offers provocations around the notion of progress. So please join me in welcoming Professor Benjamin. Thank you. Thank you so much for that introduction, Professor George. Thank you everyone for tuning in. I'm thrilled to be in conversation with all of you today. And um, anytime there's such a long list of co-sponsors, I, I, I can't wait because it means it's really cutting across the, our usual silos in academia and bringing together people in interesting conversations. So I'm thrilled to be here. Wonderful, we're thrilled to have you. So a bit about our Tanner Talk um, structure for the audience. The way the format works is I will ask or invite Professor Benjamin to comment on a series of topics that I've drawn from her body of work. We will then turn the program over to um, our colleague who will work our Q&A. I did see a few of qu the questions that came in before this talk and many of them um, beyond race and technology were simply interested in race and racism. And I was struck by the name of the lab that you founded, the Ida B. Wells Just Data Lab. And I think Ida B. Wells as a person, as an activist, as a woman, would be an interesting way for us to begin to talk broadly about the connection between what you're writing in the new Jim Code and the good old Jim Crow. This is another book I'll recommend. I'm plugging books today. Um, a law professor, um, former law professor, Michelle Alexander, who really tries to capture our present moment, appreciating that we're coming from a past. So in all of this, I suppose the point I'd like you to address or the question I'm asking you is to talk to us about notions of race and racism. Why is it that you're expressing your work through the lens of new Jim mm -hmm. Code? Mm -hmm. And how does that relate to Jim Crow? Yeah, thank you for that, that question. Um, you know, I think part of what um, both Michelle Alexander's work and mine and many others, including your own, is wrestling with is how to think about uh, what of today um, is different in terms of our racial um, relations, racial, uh, in the, the racism in our institutions, 
um, the everyday expression of anti-Blackness, what's distinct, and what is a continuity with the past? What is a different expression, perhaps a different guise or a different form, but which retains the same logics or outcomes? And I think there, the, the, the answer to that is not um, easy. It's not, there's not a, a, a nice little two by two table that we could make that would put some things in one box and something, some things in another. It's an ongoing um, intellectual and I think advocacy um, concern to think about what is, con you know, what are the continuities and discontinuities with the past? What I think of as next gen racism is how my, my students and I talk about it. That is, what of today um, that they have to grapple with is different from their grandparents? And what's just like, oh, you know, old wine and new bottles, <laughs> um, as it were. And so for the new Jim Crow, what that um, concept and that framework really does powerfully is to show how different institutions carry the baton of racial domination. How even though formally slavery ended, it uh, transformed into another institution that maintains certain forms of racial and social control then we have we had Jim Crow, which you know legally allowed discrimination to persist in all of our institutions. We also had a, a, we have and continue to live with the legacy of um, geographic segregation and the way that in many ways today our geography of our country, which is as if not more segregated in many cases than it was in a prior era, continues the tradition of racial domination in terms of the allocation of resources, in terms of political power, in terms of opportunity and life chances. And geography in many ways naturalizes racial hierarchies so that we can look at a particular geography, a white neighborhood or a black neighborhood and come up with different stories that justifies why some places have abundant resources, whether green space or financial institutions or grocery stores and some places have been divested from. And so we have to think about that as another sort of stage in the ongoing tradition of racial domination. And of course, Michelle Alexander's work focuses squarely on the role of our incarceration system as allowing for this racial domination to persist. And so what we have to kind of come to grips with the the story of progress that we tell ourselves as a nation that somehow magically the passage of, of laws in the 60s sort of like fairy dust transformed the world so that we are now living in some completely new post-racial reality. We know that's not true. And so for me, it brings us to the new Jim Code where although I'm really still interested in the role of incarceration, I'm specifically interested in technologies that promote this kind of racial and social control, the role of technology, because that is what we associate as the height of progress. When every time we, whenever we imagine the future, it's filled with new gadgets and new systems that sort of promise that we've overcome these old ways of doing things in the past. So if anything really um, contains the the, the hope of progress, it's new technologies. And yet these become some of the prime um, perpetuators of racial domination. And I know it's hard for many people when they're first encountering it to really wrap their heads around it because we think of technology as asocial and apolitical. It's as if it's in a bottle, uh, a bubble 
or grows on trees. You know, we don't think about technology as what it is, which is the handiwork of human invention, which includes the biases, assumptions, the desires, the worldviews of the people who create it, the people who use it, the society in which it circulates. And so the new Jim Code is sort of priming us to think more critically about our relationship to technology and what it does in the world, but also it leaves open the idea that we can design things differently. The technologies that we have, it's not inevitable. <laughs> you know, as much as some inventors would like us to believe that we have no choice in the matter, we would we just have to we just have to live with the with the inventions, the designs of their their handiwork. We have a choice and we can design differently and we can resist the technologies that we decide collectively, democratically, we don't like that don't serve us. And we can pour our energies and our insights and our imagination into creating different tools that actually enhance justice, enhance equity. And so that's what the work of the new Jim Code offering a prescription, a critique, but also opening a door to say, well, now that we see that, what can we do differently? Um, so thank you very much. And I think that's responsive to a question we received from Myrna Driscoll, who was interested in the past and the future. And um, it's encouraging to hear that you think we can imagine something different. I want to um, take you deeper into how the tools of Jim Code operate. Mm -hmm. So in your book, um, in chapters, Engineered Inequality and Coded Exposure, you highlight examples that speak both to the erasure and exposure that is associated with tech engagement in people of color. I'm looking at your hair, looking mm -hmm. at mine. Um, I wonder if perhaps you've had some instances with TSA, for example. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps you could share a few. I was really intrigued yeah. by the case study on Polaroid, HP, yeah. just for audience members who may not have had similar experiences. Could you take us through how this yeah. has come to be? Yeah, absolutely. So we can start with um, a, a viral video that was really popular a few years ago. Some of you may have seen it with two friends that were in a hotel bathroom and they filmed themselves trying to use the soap dispenser. And um, the, the soap wouldn't come out on the darker skin friend. It only came out on the, 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 the lighter skin friend. And so this was, they were giggling throughout it, the, the, the clip and it went viral, but it brought to the light, like if you go and look for it now, people have tagged it racist soap dispenser, right? <laughs> As the, but it really, although it seems like superficial, it seems inconsequential, like who cares? Just, you know, use water or go to another soap dispenser. It actually offers a really compelling window on a much larger phenomenon, which is about how simple and complex tools are designed, who is doing the designing for whom, and what's that process like? And so with the soap dispenser, we might ask, why wasn't this caught before it was installed? What, what was missing in the design process that those who are use, using infrared technology, which we know darker skin absorbs light, that no one caught this glitch <laughs> before it actually was rolled out into hotels. And so it's not simply about one tool or one instance, it's about questioning the process by which we design anything. And so, you know, we can take that, that particular recent instant and look back in time, which you're referring to, and look at, um, you know, analog or old school photographic technologies. 
which um, for for the longest time didn't had a hard time again picking up darker skin, the features of darker skin people, in part because um, they used Shirley cards, which were images of white women to calibrate the lighting and calibrate the technique. And so the technology was honed on the image of Shirley, which was the name of the model in the card, so that if you didn't fit that norm, the Shirley norm, then this technology was not developed in a way that would detect you. And what's interesting is that, how did this come to light? Why was this addressed? How was this addressed when it comes to Polaroid and others? Well, one particular part of the story is that when schools became more integrated and they were taking school pictures <laughs> and you had black and white kids in the same photo, the person taking the photo had to decide whose image is it going to focus on? And, and black parents were angry when they got the photos and their kids were all blurry in the picture. And, but at that time, that was not an, quite enough to get the companies to, to address it. What really motivated them was that chocolate, man, chocolate producers and, and wood furniture producers were angry that the photos of their products were not coming out very well. And so these two, uh, you know, sectors, chocolate and wood furniture, they were a really strong lobby to get the photographic techniques to develop in a way that was more discerning. And so here we see the role of profit in actually enacting change, you know, in, in whose interests or concerns are taken seriously. It wasn't the black parents who, was, who were concerned about their kids showing up. It was the chocolate and furniture manufacturers but what happened in terms of those kind of techniques still continue in other forms today. A colleague of mine, Joy Bulamwini, who at the time was a grad student at MIT, she was doing a project for a class in which she had to use um, facial recognition system on her computer, the little light over the computer, and it wouldn't pick her up. She's a darker skinned woman. And uh, the only way that the, 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 the um, digital, um, you know, lens would pick her up as if she put a white mask on and then it would detect her face. And so that led her to engage in a really long research and advocacy um, uh, initiative, which is called Algorithmic Justice League. You can look that up or someone can post the, the website in the, in the chat that has to do with facial recognition. Now, mind you, these are systems that are used in all kinds of places, private and public sector. That means just because they don't work well on a vast majority of the population, doesn't mean that people aren't using them. They're using them throughout you know, our society. Yet it was only when Joyce hit, hit the news that they were confronted with the fact that they were faulty in this way, that they didn't detect darker skin, but specifically that they had a hard time detecting black women in particular and, and misgendering black women through these systems that are nevertheless used to identify people. And so you can look up Joy's work, but this is just to give you a sense of the trajectory. Like we go from soap dispensers, which seem uh, it's not that important to go to the history of photography, come back to the present day context of facial recognition where these systems can actually have huge impacts on people's lives. There have been people who've been falsely arrested because they've been identified by facial recognition systems that did not, did not uh, detect them uh, properly. And so the consequences of discriminatory design. And the last thing I'll just say on this point 
is that a technology can be discriminatory without the designers intending it to be. So when I say discriminatory, people say, well, oh, do you, do you think that they really tried to do that? It doesn't matter. If they tried or wanted this to happen, this is the effect, this is the outcome. And so I think that it is um, accurate to call it discriminatory in its effects, whether or not the individuals behind the screen intended it to be. So we don't need a racist boogeyman sort of coding to harm people. There, there are those, <laughs> certainly, and we have examples. You have your own examples right in Utah, in fact. <laughs> um, but that's not a requirement for a technology to have discriminatory effects. And I should just emphasize that these are systems that are used throughout our life. Many times we're being judged and we're being tracked without, our, without knowing by systems that have been created under the guise of objectivity and neutrality and progress. They're making decisions about whether we can get a home loan or not, whether we can get a particular kind of um, treatment at the hospital, whether our kids get into a certain school, <laughs> what, what's every consequential decisions, whether I qualify for food stamps, whether I am uh, considered a danger to my child and have my child taken away from me in terms of, um, you know, child welfare. Um, and almost every arena is adopting automated systems and, and AI um, tools because they've been promised that this is going to make things more efficient and in many cases promise that they'll make things more fair. And that those promises rest on a lie, which is that human beings are not the ones shaping those judgments when in fact they are. And human decisions in the past are being used to train automated systems how to make decisions for the future. So however we've made decisions in the past, let's say in a hospital, um, let's say black patients have not been given as much care and therefore not as much has been spent on their treatment over let's say the last 50 years, when we teach an automated system who to allocate resources to, that is digital triaging in the future, that past 50 years of discrimination is used in shaping the decisions that this automated system is gonna make in the future under the guise of neutrality. And some research by some colleagues last year um, brought this to light where they actually studied one of these algorithms and showed that it was allocating care to white patients much more than black patients who needed it desperately. And so the issues we're talking about today really have life and death consequences. Absolutely, beyond being delayed at the airport because your hair is suspicious according to the TSA wave machine things. Yes. Um, I particularly appreciate how you've taken this from something that's seemingly innocuous yes. to something that is intensely vitally important yes. in potentially matters of life or death. So when we talk about um, artificial intelligence and your research has provoked this, um, it isn't that we are taking decision-making entirely out of human hands because human hands are creating these um, devices and technologies. Absolutely. So I wanted to turn you to, to talking about who that is. There's a lot of dialogue about increasing diversity in the technology mm -hmm. sector. Um, one could imagine that with more diversity, someone would have caught um, why the soap dispenser doesn't work or Absolutely. who it doesn't work for. Yeah. Um, and so there is 
a lot of energy around diversity and yeah. technology. Um, we have some colleagues on this call today or this meeting today who are doing really important work and trying to advance that. Um, but also this meets resistance. I'm thinking of the 2017 letter that circulated um, around Google, um, yeah. really um, disrupting the diversity dialogue, which isn't unproblematic, but also clearly um, discriminatory in and of itself with yeah. lots of stereotypes and assumptions that um, weren't contested, that weren't challenged, and in fact, generated a lot of support internally yeah. in the organization. Um, so I guess I wanna talk about the trouble with tech bro culture mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and taking this into the humanities to really explore mm -hmm how to unpack that and, and maybe yeah. how to shift it. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, and I like the framing of tech bro culture because it really is about not just these spectacular instances when it hits the fan, but really the everyday norms and practices that people take for granted, the cultural milieu of an organization or an industry. And one of the things I would have us think about, especially to the extent that there are a number of academics and people in academia on the call, is that tech bro culture is also academic culture. And the fact that it's so vital that we talk about tech bro culture is because they have an outsized influence on every, everyone's lives in, the, in their designs and in their products. But the same kinds of uh, forms of racism and sexism that inform that Google letter are rife in academia. That is, uh, you know, the idea that some groups are naturally inclined towards STEM. Or some groups are, you know, their 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 culture um, supports education, and therefore they thrive. And some and some cultures are, um, you know, anti-education or or are not not invested in education. And you even as I say this, I'm not naming the groups, but the fact that we all know who I'm talking about means that it's a cultural phenomenon. The fact that it permeates our thinking, it is part of the water and the air that we breathe in this country, that we think that intelligence, we have a very racial ethnic sort of um, notion of who is more intelligent, who is uh, you know, more athletic, naturally speaking, you know, in terms of genetics and who's more intelligent in terms of math and science, who should take leadership positions, who should, who should take orders. And so all of these things, uh, tech bro culture is part of American culture in terms of these ideas um, that, you know, when it comes to gender and science or when it comes to race and mathematics. And so I think as much as we do want to critique and call and expose how, uh, how it infects our tech industry and then how we all have to deal with the consequences of that, Namely, the fact that, for example, most of our social media platforms don't take racial and se race, racist and sexist harassment seriously is a direct uh, um, byproduct of who's behind the screen. The fact that the people designing and creating these platforms, they themselves do not have to face the, 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 the brunt of these kinds of things means that when they sit around to design a platform, they think, oh, we need free speech. We don't care about if people are harassing or making death threats or rape threats. And so there's a direct relation between what's behind the who's behind the screen and what we have to engage. And at the same time, I really think we have to also look in our own backyard in terms of the way that, um, you know, a, a professor at my own university, Princeton, in the last two weeks, you can look up a public letter that he wrote 
basically saying that all of this race talk is, you know, it's crap because we know that these groups are going to or are naturally, you know, um, deserving to have these spots in the university, and these other groups are going to take their their spots, right? And all of it, if you read between the lines, is really draws on this long, long history of scientific racism that tries to naturalize hierarchies and looks to science, looks to biology and genetics as a legitimation for what are at base um, really harmful and oppressive ideas about who has what qualities and who has what capacities. And so, yes, to tech bro culture and yes to us sort of um, diversifying, but there is also a whole conversation that we can have about how diversity is not gonna save us that um, even if you have a very diverse team um, that's creating something, if that diverse team is valuing profit maximization over other values, then you can have all the black and Latinx and indigenous programmers and designers and, and everything in the room, their own thinking about, you know, we have, to, we have to cater to our shareholders, we have to maximize the profit, they're also gonna make many of the same decisions that we see in the more homogenous tech workforce. And so we need to think diversity and what else do we need to be working on? Wow, thank you. That incredibly important. It isn't diversity the end all, but thinking about justice and equity, which your work also um, engages. From this culture of technology, I want to take the conversation to looking at public participation and private actors and the amount of power that private actors have in shaping our public discourse. So you said we could talk about diversity. As it turns out, under a recent executive order, it is not entirely clear that our diversity conversations wouldn't come with consequences for yeah. those of us who receive federal funds. Yeah. Um, so there is a very deliberate effort to change the conversation, shut down the conversation or silence it and characterize conversations in ways that will make it more difficult to have what already is a difficult yeah. topic to broach. So yeah. I wanted to put that in play. Mm -hmm. and also um, press you to think about the public square mm -hmm. now dominated in many ways by mm -hmm. private social media platforms as mm -hmm. we are entering into an election. Um, democratic deliberation depends on access to information. And yet mm -hmm. a lot of the content moderation to the extent it exists is largely in the unregulated hands of private commercial actors mm -hmm. who are coming from a culture um, that involves exclusion or mm -hmm. inequity. Um, mm -hmm. Don't know that I have a question in that other than mm -hmm. to invite you to comment and perhaps take us to where we might imagine something else. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so, you know, one of the, the, the ideas um, presented in the intro um, has to do, the intro of race after technology has to do with thinking about how, where and how does public policy get shaped, you know? And so um, to the extent that the big six, that is these, these major, you know, tech companies monopolize resources and decisions and that their decisions have such far wide sweeping public um, policy consequences, you know, for, for example, um, you know, we think about the fact that we have laws that outlaw housing discrimination, 
Um, you know, and yet if I'm a housing developer, I can go on one of these platforms and create an, a targeted advertisement. And until recently, I could exclude certain racial ethnic groups from seeing that advertisement. So it's a kind of digital redlining that says, I don't want these groups to have access to this opportunity. Um, and because it's happening behind the screen in the, it, and the decisions of the company to allow it are essentially facilitating ongoing forms of housing discrimination. The same goes with employment discrimination. There are instances in which some companies have opted for women not to see their employment ads. Um, or the elderly to see their, their this, these other services. And so based on the opportunities uh, to exclude and include certain groups, it in many ways um, intersects with things that we thought were settled in terms of legal <laughs> precedent and law when it comes to discrimination, but it's, it continues to be facilitated through these, these platforms. And so this tells us that we can't leave it to these companies to regulate themselves because there's money to be made in being able to do this kind of tailoring. And that's going to trump other kinds of public values um, that are anti-discriminatory anti kind of values or anti-racist values. And so we need third party independent oversight. We need a thing to rethink the larger ecosystem in which protections are are made for um, all of us using these tools. And one example that I just posted in the chat is this re the real Facebook oversight board, which of course is not a Facebook board. It's a group of uh, scholars and policy folk and ex, ex, uh, you know, ex Facebook uh, employees um, and journalists um, who we've organized ourselves into a board that we think should already exist. <laughs> and we're operating as if we are the real Facebook oversight board. Um, and what's so interesting is although Facebook has its internal ethics board, which hasn't done much since it was formed, um, since in the last two weeks, since this real board has formed and we've made it very public in terms of our criticism and our calls to action, many of the things that Facebook has been sitting on, especially around the elect election, They've quickly moved to try to, to, to pass certain kinds of changes to what's possible in terms of targeted advertisement and so on around political ads that people have been calling for, for since 2016, at least, since Cambridge Analytica scandal and so on. Um, and so this is an example of, in some ways, a creative exercise that's at once serious about the need for the, the, these kind of independent oversight that's not beholden, it's not internal to, to the company. And so I would encourage everyone to check out the, the link I just posted and to follow what's happening with the real Facebook oversight board as you know one sort of um, example or alternative sort of um, model for how we might go forward in terms of public interest technology and demanding what we want from these companies um, rather than waiting for them to act in our best interests. Thank you very much. Um, I do commend everyone to look at the real Facebook oversight board. Um, as you talked about that, that reminded me of a real world example where targeted advertising could have had tragic consequences in the space of Facebook. Um, just recently, a state governor um, was subjected to a kidnapping attempt because militias and alt-right-wing groups 
were able to shape and find one another, arguably some experts and researchers are suggesting because of the way the targeted advertising works. Could mm. you explain that for us? Mm. That's interesting. It's not really my specialty. Oh. So I don't know if I can connect those dots. Uh, it, for me, it goes back to um, the affordances of a particular platform, what it facilitates, what it allows by the way that it's designed and what it prevents in terms of harms based on the decisions of, you know, what the algorithms privilege over other things. And so I, I actually wasn't aware about the connection between the targeted ads and the Facebook groups. Although I imagine if, you know, without having done the homework, yeah. I would imagine that if I was an average Facebook user who had been posting messages or, or, or clicking links that were, had a white nationalist spin on it, then the algorithm would find me and present me with the opportunity to join a Facebook groups that also shared that ideology, which would enroll me in a more organized fashion into that kind of ecosystem and then, and, they, and then perhaps fuel my hate or my antagonism and mobilize me. Whereas in, before the ad, I might've just used social media to, to let off steam, racist steam. In this case, it actually arms me and, and, and emboldens me because I'm now with a larger group that's willing to act on those ideas. We know that was behind, for example, the Charleston shooting a few years ago in which the social media, um, the, uh, the, the, the behavior of the shooter um, showed that he was slowly drawn into this milieu and, and further indoctrinated based on his previous, his initial inclinations. And it's hard to know definitively whether without that indoctrination and emboldening, he would have ended up going into that church. And so I think that there's a definite complicity um, in, in these, in these uh, companies in turning a blind eye or using the rhetoric of free, free speech in order not to take these issues seriously. Yeah, and, and hopefully that is a conversation that can be changed, but you're spot on and that's what um, some researchers are suggesting happens. Once you like this, you'll also like that and then you're mm -hmm. down a rabbit hole of mm -hmm. potentially racist conduct. And, it's, and one thing I'll, I'll say is that just a, a last year, perhaps it was, YouTube uh, changed its own recommendation algorithm in order to stop those types of things from happening. And so, you know, who knows, with a click of a button, they actually created a policy that said that they would not recommend more and more racist videos if someone had shown an interest in it. And so it's within their means, it's not rocket science. And so I think there's a different model for those who can, can fact check what I'm saying, um, perhaps you can pull up a link that shows what YouTube's policy is with respect to recommending um, racist and white nationalist content, um, because I, I have a, a vague memory of them changing their policy at some point. Yeah, and I like to tell my law students, these are not the laws of gravity, right? We can, we can change That's some good. of these laws That's and policies. Good. Yeah. Um, so it's now the part of the program where I'm going to turn to our postdoctoral uh, guest, Yamna El-Sayed, to engage the chat. Um, Yamna is with us from most recently the University of Southern California's communications department. She has a specialization in cultural studies. She has a spectacular project on civic imagination and she is the fellowship award winner that is with us from the American Council of Learned Society. So I will turn over to Yamna to continue our conversation and give voice to some of the questions that have come in. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Benjamin and uh, Dr. George for the enlightening conversation. Um, it certainly leaves a lot of us thinking about um, with a lot to consider as we approach our research, the technologies that we develop and as users ourselves. So um, without further ado, we have 20 minutes for Q&A and we received several questions uh, through the event registration and the Q&A feature of the webinar. Um, so we may not be able to get to all of them, but I'm gonna do my best to synthesize them and bring them all as discussion points um, to uh, Roha and Erica. So our first question um, uh, speaks to what we can do. And it's from faculty member Paula Smith. And she's asking, would you have any suggestions for policies or practices that the IT field can implement, mm -hmm. which would help address the issues that you've raised? Mm -hmm. Thank you for that question, and um, I think that this is a kind of an ongoing um, issue that different programs have to really answer for themselves in light of the scholarship and the, the advocacy that's been happening over the last several years. And so I'm not going to offer any hard and fast prescriptions, but actually point to some more resources that programs um, and, fee and your field can use um, in moving forward. So but one of the first things that comes to mind is the work of my colleague, Sasha Costanza Schock, whose book Design Justice was just published earlier this year. So I would encourage you to check out Design Justice um, and the Design Justice principles on the website associated with this book as a as a touchstone, as a guide in deciding how to operationalize, operationalize those ideas, whether in the context of curricula or in terms of research or other kinds of um, initiatives. And so design justice, the framework and the principles and the, the, the practical ways in which they've already been implemented, I think offer a great model for IT. Similarly, the book Data Feminism by Catherine D'Ignazio and Lauren Klein is a really powerful um, framework and text that offer lots of great case studies of how we can design and how we can do our work differently. One of the things, and I'm teaching both of these books, so they're on the top of my mind this, this semester. Um, they're very accessible, accessibly written. And even as someone who's been engaging the, the, these issues for quite some time, so many of the examples of how different groups and institutions are working on different models of um, tech development um, were new to me, like I had, didn't know about them. And so they'll really spark your imagination and give you a lot of great ideas about how to move forward when you see how other groups have been doing that. So Data Feminism and um, Design Justice. The last book I'll suggest is a, a more irreverent um, manifesto directed specifically to designers by Michael Montoya. Montoyo, um, and it, you know, he he's someone who's been working in the in Silicon Valley for over twenty years, and so he's angry. <laughs> he's and you can tell he's angry in his writing, and but the anger is fuel. It's fuel for really his um, incitement for individuals to do better, to actually mobilize and to stand up for the values, public values, not just care about who's paying your check, paycheck, but really think about yourself beyond a job description. What responsibility do you have? And he likens the lack of uh, uh, ethical framework in the context of computer science and programming and design to 
the 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 way that ethics has been operationalized in medicine and says why don't we have a do no harm uh commitment to do no harm <laughs> um and, and so again i think these three books are a good starting point um for anyone who's thinking about you know the way forward and i think you'll get a lot of um great ideas um and energy from engaging these either in the context of a book club or a class or some kind of uh, some other kind of um, collective that wants to move forward on these issues. Thank you so much, Dr. Benjamin. These are great resources. Um, and if I may take this opportunity to point out that uh, our colleague Scott is sharing a lot of the resources Roja is talking about um, and uh, several initiatives that might be helpful if you want to get started yourself on that. Um, so we now move to a very timely question that is related more to pedagogy. And I know how much you stress on pedagogy as a means for resistance, um, Dr. Benjamin, but now even teaching people about critical race theory has become um, somewhat under attack. So from Anonymous, we got a question. Um, could you talk about how we might address critical race theory in our classrooms and research uh, considering Trump's recent ex executive order? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I can talk about the first part. I don't know. I really don't know what that order what that's going to do on the ground. Um, I just uh, saw a headline from my own professional association, the American Sociological Association, who's written a public statement in response to that context, which I'll, I can dig up and post. Um, and also, I just saw a webinar for scholars and teachers who are concerned about it. My own thinking right now is I'm just going to do what I've always done. <laughs> and if I get into trouble, I, well, I'll deal with it. Like I, I, every day there's some new ridiculous uh, shift in policy that's meant to make life harder and more dangerous for all kinds of people, not just scholars and teachers of critical race theory. And so um, for me, I'm just going to keep teaching, speaking. If people don't want to invite me because it's going to take away their funding, that's okay. I, um, but I don't really have a strong strategy going forward in light of this ridiculous order. Um, and so, you know, we, we need to keep doing what we've always, I think there's so much to do in terms of really integrating, let's just call it sociology and history. We don't even have to call it critical race theory. Let's just call it, we, we need to integrate sociology, we need to integrate the social sciences and humanities in, in our STEM training, right? So that people don't, are not assumed to be well trained in these fields unless they have some modicum of understanding of even just the history of data. Like we don't even have to do history in general. I mean, the history of your field, the history of the information sciences or the history of mathematics, like it can be very tailored to the discipline. But I think I'm always surprised when people don't know, for example, about the relationship between IBM and the Holocaust which was a New York Times bestseller. And yet in our training of, you know, data scientists, somehow we managed to avoid <laughs> this huge collaboration between a company that still exists and one of the worst atrocities, you know, a hu humankind has, has managed to, you know, administer. And so like, that's just one data point where I think we can do so much better and we don't have, we don't, we don't need to call that's not critical race theory. That's just history. 
That's like New York Times best-selling history. <laughs> Let's just add some of that in part to just grow our awareness and our um, insight into the potential dangers and power of seemingly neutral tools and fields. And I think that alone can make um, our students, make ourselves and our field just more reflexive about what we're doing and not assume that just because we want to do good in the world, that what we produce will necessarily have that effect. And so we, we need to become, we need to engender more technological humility in terms of um, what we're actually doing so that we don't assume that our intentions um, are the end all be all in terms of the, what happens. And so that's kind of my riff on, on this Trump policy. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Benjamin, for that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, since we're speaking about the relationship between citizens and the state, um, I was wondering um, if you can shed some light as to um, how technologies can be used to police um, those citizens. Uh, mm -hmm. We have student Kelly DeLone is asking, um, how can technology uphold the carceral system and expand the prison industrial complex? If you can talk yeah. more about that. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's, you know, there's a few concrete examples I'll point to as part of a larger phenomenon that I call carceral technoscience. And that's more of the focus of my edited volume, Captivating Technology. But part of it is to understand how, um, you know, many times these tools that we find continue to contain and um, surveil people, how, how the promise of them often is that they're more um, they're more humanistic than their, their previous, their counterparts. So let, let's start with this idea. Prisons, um, as they were initially imagined and enacted, were reforms. They were progressive reforms that meant to move us away from capital punishment and hangings and beheadings, right? So prisons were a reform. Now we understand how deeply violent and unjust our, well, some of us understand how deeply violent and unjust our, our prison industrial complex is for a variety of reasons. And so now we've painted prisons and jails as the problem. So the question is, what are the reforms for prisons and jails? And in many ways, carceral tools like electronic monitoring or apps that keep tabs on you when you're not being held in a cell these technologies are being framed as the reform to prisons and jails, which we now cast as um, deeply you know, dehumanizing. But these new tools, uh, like prisons before them, actually create a new context that's even more punitive and has even more detrimental effect on, on people's lives and opportunities. And so rather than continue to innovate new ways to punish people, Maybe we should take stock of why we're so attached to the punish punishment apparatus and punishment as a logic of social, social life to begin with. And so stepping back from constantly trying to tinker with new tools and ask ourselves, what is this larger context in which we feel so, such a strong desire, not just to punish everyone, but typically to punish particular groups based on class and race and nationality and so on. And so really the, the, the solutionism of technology, I, we need to sort of um, wake up to the fact that the solutions often produce new problems. And I write a little bit about that in both of the books mentioned earlier, but there's many other scholars 
who write in the context of abolition, prison abolition, that are focused not just on putting an end to cages, <laughs> um, and prisons and jails, but also other kinds of tools that continue to, to um, um, uh, contain people. And so electronic monitoring, uh, other digital surveillance tools um, and so on. And so hopefully that could just sketches out a little bit of the response to that um, question, but it's really important. And for those younger scholars on the call, there's so much work that can be done and needs to be done on this, whether we're talking about in the context of ICE and ICE, ICE's collaboration with different tech companies like Palantir in order to find new and fancier ways to keep track of immigrants or other kinds of other forms of carceral technoscience. We need your thoughts and your research on these topics. Thank you, Dr. Benjamin. Um, certainly eye-opening. I mean, the fact that we need to change our lens and the, the way that we um, view the concept of punishment in itself. So we have time for one or two more questions. Um, we have one question come one question coming from the audience, and it says, um, since we're talking about tools, how they can um, control us, are there tools you know of that can help advertising teams? So it's the other way around that can help advertising teams avoid cultural appropriation in advertising campaigns. Um, uh, Didi Olson here is mentioning that best intentions and lack of education is a challenge to overcome when you don't know where to look or you are served content that reinforces your bias. Yeah, thanks, Didi. Um, you know, you can definitely start with the texts that I already mentioned. Um, although I was referring them in the context of IT, they really apply to anyone that has anything to do with, um, with, with um, STEM in general, with, with um, you know, with a technological development in particular. And you can definitely apply the insights in all of the, this work to the context of advertising and marketing. That's not my specialty. Um, um, I will just, just point out, you know, part of the, the tension is that there is a demand for targeted advertising. That means we, we enjoy being seen by technology <laughs> where the ads seem to, to understand our tastes and our interests. And so the issue is not just a top-down change of what, how the platforms and how the recommendation systems need to be designed differently, but also a kind of cultural um, reckoning with the, the, the conveniences and the, the representation that, that individuals and groups enjoy um, in their relationship with these tools. And so I will just put that out there to say that in moving forward, in the same way that the passage of some laws did, did, does not magically sort of dissolve discriminatory practices, changes at the level of companies or institutions in terms of the design of platforms isn't magically like, if we don't have recommendations for racist Facebook groups, that doesn't mean that the racist groups disappear, <laughs> you know? And so um, there's an there's a entanglement in terms of the affordances of the technology and the cultural phenomenon more broadly. Author and Professor Ruha Benjamin, in conversation with Erica George, Executive Director of the Tanner Humanities Center, which graciously shared this conversation with us this evening. Check tonight's show notes for links to a reading list that resulted from that conversation. Tomorrow night, Aldine Strychnine KRCL's Punk Rock Farmer will join me as we share true tales from the Agrihood with Lincoln Street Farm 
and some fresh homegrown music. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for listening and have a great night. Democracy Now! is next.